Amen. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you there, uh, you'll find our passage on page 961. 961. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Amen. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your word, and we pause once again to ask for your help. We pray, Father, that you would be with us, and Lord, illumine our hearts and our minds, and help us to see the reality and the significance of Jesus' death, and may we be changed and transformed by it. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, on Sunday mornings, we have been walking through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And as we come to the Easter season in which Christians pause and specially give time to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we are coming to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it's very appropriate because 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in this chapter, Paul focuses on Jesus' death, our death, and especially the hope and the glory that we can have in the resurrection of Jesus. And so, as we walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, over the next several weeks, we are going to be reflecting on the resurrection of Jesus, and the series will be entitled, is entitled, From Death to Glory, and so we are starting that series this evening, and then we'll continue it on Sunday. I invite you all to attend for this important series as we reflect on the death and the resurrection, especially the resurrection of Jesus. But for tonight, I want us to just meditate on one verse that we find in this passage, and it's verse 3. Verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and this is really what I want us to focus on, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. As we meditate on this one verse this evening, I want us to consider three parts from this passage. First, the death of Christ. 
Secondly, the love of God. And third, the truth of Scripture. And so if you're here tonight and you've never really understood the death of Jesus, like why did Jesus die, I hope that you will understand that tonight for the first time. And for all of us, I hope that we will experience fresh joy and freedom and peace as a result of the death of Jesus. So first of all, let's consider the death of Christ. So Paul writes there in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. Now, we need to pause here for a moment and just ask the question, well, who is it that Paul is actually speaking of here? When he says Christ, there's a lot of confusion about that today. In fact, there was a lot of confusion about that in Jesus' day. We remember the account in Matthew chapter 16. Some of you may be familiar with this. When Jesus was with his disciples, it's about midway through his public ministry, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they begin to give answers. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're one of the prophets. But obviously, there was not a consensus. And it's similar today. If we were to ask that question, who do people say that Jesus is, we would get a lot of different answers. Jesus was a good moral teacher. Jesus was a spiritual guru. Jesus was an enlightened man. He was a man who was beyond his time. All kinds of different answers we would get today. And you know, when you think about all those different answers, if, if someone were to say those things about us, any of those things, we would be honored, probably satisfied. We would know that we were in good company. But Jesus wanted more, and he pressed further. His disciples said, this is what all these different people are saying about you. This is, what they're, this is who they're saying you are. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. But Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter made the good confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So when he says you are the Christ, it's actually the same word that Paul is using here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, when he says Christ died. And one of the things we need to understand there is that when, when Peter says you are the Christ, this is not just another name for Jesus. It, in fact, it's a title. So it's not just like Jesus' middle name or his last name, but it's a title that's being ascribed to Jesus. And where did this come from? Where did this idea of Christ come from? It, it comes from the Old Testament Scriptures. In the Old Testament Scriptures, God had promised that He would send one who would be a deliverer, who would be a king, who would deliver the people of Israel from their sins and from their oppressors. And this one to come in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, was identified as the Messiah. In the New Testament, in the Greek, was identified as the Christ. It's the same idea. It's the same concept. It's the anointed one. Just two different languages spoken in two different languages. It's the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one of God. And this is who Peter is saying that Jesus is. And it's remarkable then how Jesus responds. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus responds to Peter's claim, Blessed are you, Simon, 
For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now you know, if Jesus was a good man, and this was not true of him, that he was not the Christ, that he was not the Messiah, he would have been obligated to reject Peter's claim. But he didn't. Instead, what we see is that Jesus invited it. He encouraged it. He affirmed it. You know, even today, you'll hear people say things like, well, when people talk about Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, really, that was something that came later. Jesus never thought that about himself. That was just people getting carried away. You know, the, the, the stories about Jesus kind of got larger than life, and we started to think about him in that way, but Jesus never really thought of himself that way. But that's, in fact, what we see from the gospel accounts and from the New Testament scriptures, which were written in the first century, is that that's not the case at all. That Jesus, in his own life, invited and encouraged and affirmed this idea that he was the promised one of God. So this is who Paul is speaking of when he says Christ. And then Paul goes on to say that Christ died. Now this was unexpected. This is surely not what Peter and the disciples had hoped for. You can, in Matthew 16 actually, when when Jesus says, yes, Peter, you're right, I am the Christ, you just get this sense that the passage just rises, that the disciples and Peter are filled with a sense of victory and hope. But then right after Peter makes this confession and Jesus affirms him in his confession, Jesus begins to teach his disciples that he will go to Jerusalem, that he will be betrayed, that he will be condemned by the religious leaders, and that he will suffer and die. Peter is not pleased, and we read in Matthew chapter 16 that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He says this was unacceptable to Peter. It was shocking. Never. And if we're honest in one sense, as we think about God and his purposes, and we think about what we would expect God to do in saving us, in delivering us, in accomplishing his purposes in the world, we have a sense, even within ourselves, that this is shocking. It's counterintuitive. The promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer, the king, he would die? Why would God choose For this anointed one, for Christ, to win his greatest victory through death. This is especially true when we consider the nature of Jesus' death. You know, Jesus didn't just silently drift out of this life into another world. Sometimes we talk to folks and they tell us accounts of, you know, people, they sit down and they eat dinner one night and then they, after they've eaten dinner, they go and they change their clothes and they brush their teeth and they get ready for bed and they lay down in their bed and they fall asleep and then they just kind of drift off into another world. And I imagine for all of us, we think, well, if I have to go, that's probably the way I would want to go. But this is not the way Jesus went. 
Jesus didn't just silently drift off into another world. Jesus didn't die at a ripe old age. Jesus died in the prime of life. And Jesus died in the worst possible way. Falsely condemned. Beaten with a whip that was laced with nails and stone and glass. Ridiculed, mocked, crucified. How could this be? There's a sense in each one of us in which we revolt and say, never, how could this be? But this was how Jesus died. And so we ask ourselves the questions, the question, why? Why did the Christ have to die and why did he die in this way? And that leads us to our second point, the love of God. The love of God. Notice in verse 3, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins. For our sins. Now there is surely here a legal aspect of what Paul is speaking of here, and I'll explain what that means. There's a legal aspect to the death of Jesus in the sense that If God is to forgive us of our sins and we are to have a relationship with God, justice must be satisfied. God is just and the law of God demands that sin result in judgment and death. And so when we see here that Jesus died for our sins, there's this idea of substitution, that Jesus voluntarily offers himself in our place to take the judgment and the condemnation that we deserve so that we can be forgiven. He takes our death. He takes our judgment. He takes our condemnation so that we might live. The righteous requirement of the law is satisfied in Jesus on our behalf. And this is important because everyone, to a certain extent, understands that they're a sinner. Everyone understands, to a certain extent, that there is a moral code and that we have broken that moral code. And therefore, everyone, at one level or another, is seeking to justify themselves. To prove to themselves and to others, and even perhaps to God, that they're a a good person that they should escape this judgment. And so we do things like working a lot or giving to a charity or going to church or coming to a service or eating healthy, recycling, whatever it is. We, we contribute and give ourselves to good things. And all of these in many ways are good things and some of them are things that we should absolutely be doing. But listen, my friends, none of them will quiet your conscience. None of them will finally atone for your sins. And that's why Jesus came. J.I. Packer, the Christian theologian, put it this way. Listen to his words. He says, quote, Deep, rich, and full peace of conscience comes only when you know that your sins have not simply been disregarded, but judged. Judged to the full and paid for in full by the Son of God in your place. 
You see, the only way we get peace of conscience, the only way we finally settle this thing in regards to our sin and our moral failures is not to excuse our sin, not to disregard our sin, but to know that it has been judged and paid for in full at the cross of Jesus Christ. I also want you to see here, though, that there's something more than just a legal transaction taking place. When Paul writes, Jesus died for our sins, he says that he died for our sins. You see, there's something personal here. God is taking an interest in us. He's taking an interest in you and in me. And this really speaks to the motivation for Christ's death. Why did Jesus die for our sins? And the scriptures clearly teach us that God's love for us and Christ's love for us moved Jesus to embrace the cross. We sang about it tonight, how deep the Father's love for us. I point you just to two passages of scripture on this point. One is John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So it's God's love for us that, he, that, that the father was moved and the son willingly subjected himself to the cross. Or another passage, Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, and we read, Christ died for our sins, God wants us to know that the death of Jesus is the demonstration of his love for us. I've been reading a book, actually. I just finished it this last week, entitled The Whole Christ. It's been extremely helpful to me. It's by uh, Sinclair Ferguson. Christian pastor and theologian. And he makes this point that Christians can oftentimes make the mistake of thinking that God loves us because Christ died for us. That God loves us because Christ died for us, as though there were some precondition that had to be met in order for God to love us. In the sense that, almost like Christ is doing something to persuade God to love us. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach us that God loves us because Christ died for us. The Bible teaches us that God loves us, therefore Christ died for us. In other words, there was no prerequisites. Not in ourselves. So there was nothing good. There was nothing moral. There was nothing upstanding. There were no good intentions that inclined God to love us. In fact, he loved us in spite of ourselves. 
completely unconditional. Nor was the death of Jesus the cause of Christ's love for us. The the death of Jesus was not a prerequisite for God to love us. God loved us and therefore Christ died for us. It was the fruit of God's love for us. So his love is eternal and unconditional and extravagant all the way from eternity past. He set his affection upon us unconditionally. And God wants us to live in the knowledge and the joy of that love. And here's where where I would say it this way. Theology, what we believe about God's love for us, must become psychology. You say, well, what does that mean? The knowledge of God's eternal, unconditional love must work itself so deep into our own minds and into our own hearts and onto our own psyches that psychologically and emotionally it is liberating. It's freeing. It's healing. And what are the signs that the love of God is healing us, is making us whole? It means, it looks like an ever-growing freedom from fear, from anxiety, from melancholy, from cynicism, from pessimism. Why? Because we are fully assured that he loves us. He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. He has always loved us. And he will never stop loving us. He is for us in Christ. I think a healthy prayer to pray in this regard is that God would make us, Lord, make me spiritually, emotionally, psychologically healthy in the gospel. And even as I say that, I know how some of that, how that might fall on some of you even now. So you might think to yourself, well, I'm not that. I'm obviously not as emotionally and psychologically healthy as I should be and I see that I'm not believing the gospel and then what do we do we like beat ourselves up for weeks with shame and guilt because I'm not that listen don't receive it that way this is not intended to be another law to beat you up further it's intended to be liberating and life-giving the proper way to respond is say I'm not that but God loves me even now Right? He won't love me when I get it right, only when I get it right. He won't love me when I figure all this out. He loves me now. He loved me before Christ died for me, and in Christ he has made a way for my sins to be forgiven, and he loves me now, and he will love me always. And that is the key to freedom in Christ. To know that he died for our sins because he loves us. In fact, this was so important to Jesus that his disciples get this. That Jesus said in John chapter 15, As the Father has loved the Son, 
so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So, the death of Christ, the love of God, and finally the truth of Scripture. Just very briefly, we read there in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, here it is, in accordance with the Scriptures. There is a uh, liberal theologian, at one point he won the Nobel Peace Prize, his name was Albert Schweitzer, and uh, he believed that when Jesus died, he died a disillusioned man, that Jesus believed that he was called by God, and he believed that, Jesus, that God would ultimately deliver him um, from death, but God didn't, and so in the end, Jesus died a disappointed and disillusioned man, much like a tragic Shakespearean hero. But although Albert Schweitzer believed that, it is clear that that is not what the Apostle Paul believed, right? Paul says here just the opposite. That Jesus' death was not an accident. That it wasn't a tragic mistake. But rather, it was exactly as God had purposed and planned. He died according to the Scriptures. As we read in Acts chapter 2, Jesus died according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And what scriptures is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, right? And there's a plethora of Old Testament scriptures that we could point to that speak about even the specific details of Jesus' death, which would come hundreds and hundreds of years later after these passages of scripture were written. We read through one of those passages of Scripture this evening, Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56 was written centuries before Jesus was ever born. And it is remarkable about Isaiah the prophet speaks about the historic, even the historical details and the theological and personal implications of Jesus' death. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, we read, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I would say this evening that if if you're here this evening, you're not yet a Christian. One thing I would say is, How do you make sense of those kinds of passages found in the Bible? How do you account for that? How do you account for for men writing hundreds of years before Jesus' life and death and resurrection speaking with historical accuracy about the events that would take place? For those of you who are believers, it's important for us to see this as well, that Jesus died according to the Scriptures because our assurance of God's forgiveness and our confidence in God's love is strengthened by the knowledge that Jesus' death is not a fable, it's not a myth, it didn't just happen by circumstance. But it's an historical reality 
that God purposed and planned and declared beforehand and then came to pass exactly as he had determined. We have solid ground upon which to put our confidence in God's love for us in Christ. So as we come to the table tonight, I hope that we'll reflect upon these truths and that our hearts will be full of rejoicing as we remember that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's pray. God, we thank you and praise you for this good news that we have been given. That you purposed and planned our salvation in Jesus. That you declared it in Holy Scripture. That you manifested it and brought it about in human history. That it has been preserved for us and declared to us again through the New Testament authors. And Father, we thank you for how it is so clearly a confirmation of your love for us. We thank you, Father, that you have loved us in Christ. That through faith in Jesus, you have forgiven our sins so that we can have peace of conscience and that you have drawn us into an eternal relationship with you so that we do not have to fear so that we do not have to live in guilt or shame but that we can live in the freedom and joy of your love Father even as we take the bread and the cup now Remind us of these truths and apply them to the depths of our heart. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.